calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. You are listening to episode one of Double Share, a trader's tale from the golden age of the Solar Clipper, written and read by Nathan Lowell. Chapter one, Port Newmar, 2358, May 22nd. A single shuttlecraft ripped across the pale gray sky overhead lining up on the runway, engines shrieking in an oddly dopplered wail as it came in low and fast across the bay. While I'd gotten used to the sound of shuttles landing and taking off during my time at the academy, this one was special. It would be taking me up to meet the fast packet that would transport me to my first actual officer's billet as third mate. I was headed to the home office of Diurnia Salvage and Transport for assignment to one of their ships. It wasn't a terribly glamorous berth, but it was a start— I knew only too well that some of my classmates were still scrambling to find a posting, and those without family ties to space were finding the scrambling to be quite difficult. I suspected that without the Commandant's intervention, I might well be one of them. As the shuttle finished its final turn over the water and began the short run into the landing strip, I turned for one last look at the campus that had been my home for the past four Staniers. The manicured lawns were a bit greener than I'd grown up with on Neris, and the trees were subtly wrong. They seemed too squat to me to be called trees. The classroom and office buildings were low to the ground, most only a single story, as if in training officers who'd be working in the deep dark, they needed some kind of literal grounding to help them remember they came from a planet. The exception, Hutchins Jim, hulked on the far side of the campus from where I stood on the observation deck of the spaceport. Looking back over the Staniers I'd spent there from those first tentative days at the academy, through the shock of my first set of final exams and the exuberance of my first summer cruise, I smiled fondly. We'd stood fire watches and did a lot of what really looked like playing soldier, but it was mostly to get us to come to grips with the reality of command. I didn't think any of us really understood it, even on graduation, but the seeds were sown, and under the right conditions, I'm certain they'd grow. Between the books, the studying, the physical drill, and summer cruises, it had been a tornado of experience. I'd come to the academy with three of my shipmates from the Lois McKendrick, Philip, Pip, Carstairs, Brillantine Smith, and Beverly Aerith. Of the four of us, Brill was the only one who'd already held a degree. Her academy years consisted of a shortened curriculum, more akin to a graduate degree than the bachelors of science the rest of us pursued. 
Last I'd heard, she was somewhere over in the Gretna Quadrant on a Federated Freight Clipper and would be sitting for her engineering second ticket soon. Pip was already headed back to Dunsany Roads. While we're at the Academy, his father and uncle had jointly purchased another Damien-class 8-metric kiloton ship, similar to the other ships in their family fleet. Pip was pretty misty when the whole fam Damley showed up for his graduation with the news that the new ship would be named Prodigal Son. The details were sketchy, but between all the cousins, siblings, spouses, and assorted others associated with the Carstairs family, it was pretty clear that Pip would have a free hand on cargo trading on at least one of the ships, and that in the fullness of time he'd become the skipper of the Prodigal Son. I tagged the grav pallet that carried my kit and maneuvered it down to the departure gate where Bev was waiting. We'd be riding the same shuttle up to the orbital, but where I'd be taking a fast packet to the Diurnia Quadrant, her family's co-op ship waited for us up in orbit. We'd be riding together for one last time, and it was a bittersweet feeling. When we'd first met, I'd had the impression that she'd been a lot older than Pip and me. Actually, it was only a couple of staniers. I thought back to our early relationship, the boy toy period, and blushed a bit at the memories that came flooding back. When we'd left the Lois McKendrick, strictures against intra-crew fraternization became void, and we took full advantage of that. For several days. With great vigor. Much to the amusement of all observers, no doubt. As with most youthful romances, however, it failed to survive the rigors and demands of academy life. After that first blush of frustrated sexual tension subsided to a more comfortable level, we found that we had things in common besides the obvious. We liked the same music and food. Her penchant for military action holos wasn't to my taste, but she didn't care much for live theater either, something I'd grown to appreciate at my mother's knee back on Neris. It was one of the things I'd missed in the deep dark, but... Port Newmar had their own semi-professional company, and I renewed my acquaintance with Albie and Pinter, Sue and Shakespeare. Somewhere around the middle of our first year at the Academy, we stopped sleeping together. Time, energy, and opportunity were lacking for us to maintain the kind of intensity that we had enjoyed. So we found, not surprisingly, that we were just really good friends with more than a passing level of intimacy. She smiled warmly at me when I trundled my graph pallet around the corner and into the waiting area. Did the shuttle land safely? She teased me. It looked okay, I told her with a grin. She was twitting me. While she'd picked up her shuttle pilot certification easily enough during the course of our studies, I lacked some dimensional sense and had never been able to master the mind-body integration that allowed me to fly the shuttle off the wire. As long as the computers were in control, I could tell the machine where I wanted it to go. But I'd never mastered the required emergency procedures and so had never been able to earn the shuttle qualification. In a matter of a few ticks, the shuttle had pulled up to the loading dock, and the port crew waved us aboard. We weren't at the normal passenger dock. Regular civilians used the terminal just across the tarmac. We weren't civilians, exactly, and the Academy shuttle was crewed by senior cadets who needed flight time. There was a fully licensed pilot in the cockpit, but everybody else was a cadet. Hey, Martin, Bev greeted a grinning cadet who held the cargo tie-downs back for us while we maneuvered our gear into the small hall. Hey, Bev. He replied warmly, "'Your mom's waiting for you up at the cargo bay. "'She's not excited much, is she?' Bev chuckled that low, dangerous laugh I knew I'd miss. "'Not much. I'm surprised she didn't ride down with you. "'Oh, she tried, but the skip pulled rank.' He nodded toward the bow. "'Said the Academy insurance wouldn't cover passengers. "'Mom knows insurance,' Bev chuckled again. "'Probably the only argument that would have worked. 
She's just excited, I pointed out. You've been away for a long time. I'd met her mother, a redoubtable individual who served the family as bursar and chief accountant. From what little I'd seen of her at the graduation ceremony, I was certain that bean counter was never one of the epithets applied to her. She was an attractive woman with the same deadly grace as her daughter. Bev snorted. She just wants to install me in officer's country so she can twist Uncle Jeremy's nose, she replied. The ship's speaker crackled in the overhead, and a laconic voice commented, "'Whenever you're ready, Mr. Casserly, port control has granted clearance, and I'd rather like to take advantage of their magnanimous offer.' Bev snickered. "'Spence hasn't mellowed any, has he?' she said softly. Martin grinned, finished latching the tie-downs, and did a final safety check on the pallets before ushering us to a pair of seats. "'If you'd be so kind as to strap in, Sars, we will be lifting off in the next few ticks,' he said." his voice carefully neutral, but his eyes twinkled merrily. We obediently took our seats, snapped the belts across our bodies, and settled in for lift while Casterly made his way forward and disappeared into the cockpit, leaving us alone in the cabin. Almost immediately, the engine started winding up and the ship rolled down the taxiway. Casterly and his crewmate up front must have had the checklists all done because there was practically no pause as the small shuttle bumbled along to the takeoff position, swung smoothly into the runway, and exploded exuberantly into the air after a short but very stiff acceleration. We banked left off the ground, out over the water, and the shuttle climbed like a scared cat. The engine's scream faded down as the air pressure outside fell, leaving only the space frame conduction to carry the sound into the cabin. Within ten ticks, the sky outside was black, and New Mars' horizon was already taking on a limb-like curve. I looked over to Bev and opened my mouth to speak, but she cut me off with a smiling, Don't. Her eyes said it all. We'd said our goodbyes. Whatever we'd had was a long time ago. A long way away. And the universe was going to be really demanding. Too demanding for us to carry extra baggage. I smiled back but didn't speak. I just held out my palm where it rested on the armrest between us. She took it in her smooth, strong hand and squeezed it once. We rode in silence like that, hand in hand all the way up to the orbital. When the locking clamps latched on, she let go. We had our belts unlatched and were waiting when Martin came to release the tie-downs. Command pilot Mike Spence followed Martin out of the cockpit and he had to hunch his lanky frame over to keep from scraping the overhead. While Martin released our baggage, Spence held out his hand to me. He smiled warmly, with a sympathetic twist to his mouth. If we'd had a few more months to practice, you'd have gotten it down, I think. Spence had been one of the long, long string of flight instructors who despaired over my lack of dexterity. I shook his hand and returned the grin. I'm not so sure, Mr. Spence, but thank you for the effort in trying to teach me. Good luck, Mr. Huang, he said. It's been a pleasure. He extended a hand to Beverly then, and his whole face lit up in a smile. Congratulations, Miss Aerith, he said. You've got the knack of it, no question. Thank you, Mr. Spence, she said shaking his hand and then leaning in to give him a brief hug. Don't let the dolts get to you, she said with a wink as she pulled away and reached for the tote handle on her pallet. By then Chris Miller, the other student pilot, had come down from the cockpit and had helped Martin clear the docking protocols with the orbital. They stood back from the hatch to give us room. I stood back so Bev could clear her tote away. Mr. Spence surprised us by barking, Hand salute! and snapping to attention, as did Miller and Casserly on either side of the hatch, for all the world like an honors party, which, I suppose, they were. Smiling, Bev and I braced and returned the salute crisply. 
Carry on, Mr. Spence, Bev responded as our hands cleared. Aye, aye, sir, Mr. Spence replied, and thank you, sir. Bev led the way out of the lock and onto the orbital. Slowing just a bit as we got to the debarkation lounge, she glanced over her shoulder once, her eyes shining, and a wolfish smile played across her lips. Take care of yourself, boy toy, she said softly, and then stepped out into the lounge to be buried in the avalanche of family, friends, and laughing children waiting to escort her home. I smiled to myself, worked my own palate around the boiling, squealing throng, and out into the main docks proper. The cold of the dock stung my face and made my eyes tear up a little as I looked around to orient myself. I headed down the docks to starboard in search of my ride, the solar clipper Christiana Ellis, a fast packet en route from Newmar to Diurnia, and my first billet as an officer. Chapter 2 Newmar Orbital, 2358, May 22nd the Christiana Ellis wasn't that far down the dock from the shuttle bays. The docks were like a second home to me. As part of the academy training, I had spent a goodly amount of time working on and around the docks to learn the ins and outs of ship handling. There was a lot of grumbling when we'd spent one whole month doing lock maintenance in our second year, but in the end, everybody agreed that knowing how the docking clamps worked up close and personal gave us a better appreciation for how little it would take to actually damage one and the ship attached to it. Recent changes in the Joint Planetary Committee on Trade had relaxed some of the standardization rules, permitting the orbital management to have more leeway in painting the fixtures and dock spaces. They still weren't garish by any means, but splashes of color and individualized patterns were now permitted. Numar Orbital had adopted a color scheme that picked out the various systems in pastel colors, giving the dock spaces a kind of organic feel with a pale neutral background and electrical, air, fuel, water, and data runs, all picked out in different colors where they were exposed against the bulkheads. I had to admit it was a scheme that was pleasing to the eye, if a little disconcerting to think of myself in the guts of some odd space beast. Even as I was considering how the docks had changed, superficial though it was, I couldn't help but remember my first tentative steps across the docks back in Neris after my mother died. It had been almost seven staniers. In some ways it felt like a lifetime, and in others, only last week. No doubt the cold smell of the docks triggered it, the combination of fresh paint, lubricant, hydraulic fluid, and the tang of electrical systems brought it all back. So long ago. So far away. Two Staniers on the lowest, followed by my acceptance to the Academy at Port Newmar, the four Staniers of physical, mental, and emotional challenge had given me so much more than I really was able to wrap my head around. I smiled to myself remembering how young and stupid I'd been going in. Those first exams had been so easy as long as all I had to do was fill out the forms. My test-taking skill was still intact, but my hubris got me into trouble when it came to the physical tests. While book work at the academy was a large part of the effort, occasionally you had to prove you knew something by actually doing it. The first field trial in engineering maintenance had been a rather messy and embarrassing disaster. Luckily, it was one I could recover from, and I learned to my chagrin that my actual manual dexterity was limited to very fine motor control and that my test-taking zone only kicked in on the academic work. Nobody could touch me in the book courses, like trade law, modern history, grav theory, but when it came to the practical stuff, like getting my shuttle certification, I was, at best, average. 
My systems marks had stayed high, but being a third mate was more than just systems, and it showed in my final standing. 122 in a class of 438, in the top third, but nothing really distinguishing. My academic advisor had been pretty supportive. A good showing for a first-generation spacer, Mr. Fuang, she'd said. And then with a wink, she added, your kids will probably do better. One physical skill that I did pick up at the academy came out of my self-defense classes. For Staniers, I'd admired Bev's fluid and dangerous grace. I'd seen her practicing with other crew back on the Lois. Her skill and training stood her in good stead at the academy. As part of the officer training, we were required to pick a discipline in the second semester after a brief introduction to the various schools available. Beverly, of course, went with her preferred form of gua a combination bare hand and armed combat with lots of kicks, strikes, dodges, and grappling. I, on the other hand, was largely hopeless. The training master took me aside at the end of the first semester before I had to pick a discipline for myself. Wang, he said, I hope you never get into a fight because you have all the killer instinct of a lawn chair. His words were harsh, but his tone was light and playful. I could assign you to one of the intro courses in any of the various hard disciplines. Guai Gua, Taekwondo, Karate, one of those. But you'd be wasting your time. Yes, sir, I replied. All instructors were addressed as sir, regardless of rank, and he was obviously going somewhere with this, even if I didn't know where. He nodded once and led me out of his office, out onto the academy grounds. I followed him, somewhat mystified, and he strode across the manicured lawns to where a small woman with sunburnished skin worked to prune an azalea. I remembered thinking, oh great, I'm being demoted to gardener because I can't fight. The training master stopped about two meters from the woman and bowed very deeply with an air of utmost respect. It was one of those martial arts bows, and judging from his body language and facial expression, this woman was somebody. Sifu, he said, after she returned his bow, less deep but still respectfully, please forgive my interruption, but I would like to introduce Cadet Wong to you. The woman smiled and turned her gaze on me. She inclined her head gently after a moment. Thank you, Mr. Mercer. It was all she said, and I found myself studying Tai Chi with Sifu Margaret Newmar. I had no idea at the time, and it was only ten years later that I came to understand it, that she was, in fact, a direct descendant of the Newmars for whom the system was named, and one of the top teachers in Tai Chi in the universe. Her first lesson was in pruning azaleas. I glowed at the memory of her warm smile and gentle nature. I learned so much from her, and I'd miss our time together, but I had no doubt that I'd go back to see her again. Her students regularly returned to visit her, and I met some amazing people that way. I glanced up out of my reverie and found myself at the lock displaying C. Ellis, ETD 2358, May 23. I pressed the call button and turned to look into the video pickup. In less than a tick, the lock began cycling open, and a rating stepped out, ducking under the door even before it had finished opening. She greeted me with a big smile and said, Mr. Huang, we've been expecting you. Welcome aboard, sir. I'm Casey, and you're the last one to board, so if you'd come this way? As easy as that, she ushered me aboard, tote and all, and showed me to a small stateroom. There was a clever closet that let me latch my tote down while still being able to get into it easily. A small fold-down desk, a compact wall screen, and a bulkhead-mounted bunk comprised the furnishings. There was room to stand, turn around, change clothes, 
and not much else. Casey pointed out the screen controls, they were pretty standard, and showed me where the shared sand was at the end of the passage. There was a common room and crew quarters further aft. We're pretty informal here, Mr. Huang, Casey said. We only carry eight passengers and a crew of four, so we can move pretty quickly. You'll meet Bill, Captain Lachlan, tonight if you care to join us at Freddy's for our send-off dinner. I nodded dumbly. Thank you, Casey. I managed to get out. Freddy's was one of the better restaurants on the orbital. Good food and reasonable prices. She grinned again. Sure thing. The reservation's for 1900 in the name of Ellis. You'll get a chance to meet the other passengers, too. I think most of them will be there. I nodded again. Sounds like fun, I told her. Oh, the skipper knows how to throw a party. You'll have a ball. Trust me. With that, she ducked out of the stateroom and closed the door gently, a final grin floating in the air behind her. In a sudden silence, I became aware of the ship sounds around me. Doc, there wasn't as much background noise as would be when we were underway, but the ever-present environmental blower sounds and the occasional whir and vibration as a pump or a fan started up somewhere in the ship made me feel strangely at home, even though I hadn't been aboard a ship since the previous summer cruise. Two years as crew on the Lois had certainly made its impression. And that was when it struck me. For the first time in a long time, I didn't have anything to do. I sighed a little bit and stripped off my uniform jacket, hanging it in the locker that would serve as my closet while aboard. The chrono said 15.25 local time, which meant I had a few stands before heading up to Freddy's. I keyed open the luggage tote and started pulling out the clothing I'd need for the voyage. It wasn't much, all told. A few personal ship suits and my comfy boots. When I finished that small chore, it was still only just past 1600, so I took a few minutes to check out the wall screen. There was an extensive collection of entertainment programming and some information on the ship itself. If I managed to get through the library I'd brought with me, all the accumulated reading I'd wanted to do over the previous four stanniers, it looked like I'd have plenty to occupy me. For fun, I pulled up the ship's specifications. It was a small ship, as clippers go, barely 50 meters. She was rated at 6 metric kilotons, which was more than enough for some small cargo in addition to the bread-and-butter passenger traffic. The ship's amenities included a gym with treadmills and weight machines, along with a small hot tub and a sauna. I whistled appreciatively when I saw the engine ratings and did some rough calculations. The Ellis had Tatiana-class Burleson drives, which gave her a jump range of six, twice as far as the Lois had been capable of. The Pravda fuse actors were more than sufficient to the task of powering up the Carillon sail fields and grav keel. I blinked when I saw the designators on her sails. This ship had about half as much sail area as the Lois had, but it only massed a small fraction of that larger ship. The Ellis was a sprightly little boat, according to her specs. She had good reason to be called a fast packet. We'd make the run to Diurnia in just under six weeks, dock to dock. Thanks for listening to Double Share, a trader's tale from the golden age of the Solar Clipper. The music is a medley of jigs, eavesdroppers, both meat and drink, Off We Go, by Great Big C from their self-titled debut album. Find this and other songs by Great Big C at music.podshow.com. This has been a presentation from Dorandus, offered under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 3.0 license. For website and more information on the Golden Age, visit www.solarclipper.com. <laughs> <laughs>